Good afternoon. Our second word comes from the book of Luke, chapter 23 and verse 43, which reads, Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. To understand this word, we must see it in the context from which proceeds this verse. Therefore, if, I have, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Luke 23, starting in verse 39. Uh, if you don't, you can just listen along with me as I read aloud. So I'm sure this passage will be very familiar to many of you. Starting in verse 39, it reads, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly for getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. As we come to this second word, we find ourselves really listening to the, to the, to the deathbed conversation between three dying men. It starts with one of the criminals mocking Jesus. It continues with another criminal reacting to it and defending Jesus. And it ends with Jesus giving his second word and pardoning the repentant man and giving him eternal life. Therefore, as the first word, as Pastor Ed already spoke about, embraces all of mankind within the scope of a dreadful act of a crucifying Jesus and the potential of forgiveness through his prayer, then the second word really narrows its focus down to one single needy sinner. God not only sees the world, but sees that it's made up of individuals as well. This account isn't just a roundup to the story, to give a bit of color to the story. It's really a piece of evidence that what was happening here was part of God's plan of salvation. This account was really prophesied and fulfilled. A prophecy from Isaiah 53, which said, The suffering servant of the Lord who was numbered among other transgressors. So there you have Christ up on the cross with other criminals being crucified along with him. And one of the criminals who, it said, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Can you imagine? One man on the doorstep of death using his last and final breath to insult another dying man. One author writes, You'd expect it from the Pharisees. You'd expect it from the crowd. Even the mocking of the soldiers isn't surprising, but from a thief? One crucified man insulting another? That's a POW before a firing squad taunting another's misfortune. Could anyone be more blind or vile? No wonder these thieves were on the cross. Their only value to society is to serve as a public spectacle. Strip them naked so all will know what evil cannot hide. Nail their hands so all will see that the wicked have no strength. And post them high so all will tell their children that's what happens to evil men. Yet the... Yet even the pain of the spikes won't silence their spiteful tongues. This man will die as he lived, attacking the innocent. Except in this case, the innocent doesn't retaliate. So Christ was up there, and the man is hurling insults at him, and he doesn't, he doesn't retaliate. He doesn't fight back. But the criminal on the other side does. He reacts to it. And says, don't you fear God, he says, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly for getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. You see, the criminal on the one side of Christ knew that he had done nothing wrong. He was sinless and blameless. And he deserved no punishment at all. 
Such a confession is an integral part of repentance. In rebuking the other criminal, this one rejected the view that if Jesus were the Christ, he should and could save himself. As the theologian Tanhill notes, the the criminal recognizes that Jesus' death is not a refutation of messianic planes, but a prelude to messianic power. You see, Jesus didn't come off the cross because that would have defeated his purpose and mission of why he was here. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, this criminal understood that, that he was deserving of his penalty, his death, because of his sin, but Christ was blameless, pure, he who had no sin. It's funny, you wonder what changed. In Matthew's gospel, it talks about the robbers insulting Jesus and mocking him. Now in Luke's gospel, you have one defending him. What happened to that guy? I always wonder, what happened to him? Did he witness a miracle? Maybe he, maybe he read a treaty on the Trinity while he was up there. No. According to Luke, all he heard was a prayer. The first word that Pastor Ed already spoke of. A prayer of grace and forgiveness. That was enough, though. Something happens when we stand in the presence of God, and something obviously happened to that thief. And he responds in verse 41 by saying, We are punished justly, getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. One commentary in Luke says this statement, this is the core gospel in one sentence. The essence of eternity through the mouth of a crook. He's saying, look, you know what? Jesus is right. I'm wrong. I deserve to die. He deserves to live. The thief knew precious little about Christ, but what he knew was precious indeed. He knew that an innocent man was dying an unjust death with, death with no complaint on his lips. And if Jesus can do that, maybe, maybe he might just be who he says he is. What is he? He's the savior of the world. Come here to save us, to die for us, so we become the righteousness. So he responds, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, truly, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. In order to look at this word, we we want to break it down. Break it down in three parts. First, paradise. comes from the Greek word paradisos. It's actually a a Persian word. It means means enclosure or park or garden. And it's the first time our text comes up in the scriptures. The second one is in 2 Corinthians. But the final and third occurrence of the word paradise is the book of Revelation. It's Jesus who uses this word when he promised, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This reference provides an important clue. Paradise just isn't any park or any enclosure. It's the sinless, weedless, painless garden, like the Garden of Eden. Now the Lord had planned a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put man he had formed from Genesis. The tree of life is also associated with the holy city in Revelation 22, thus pointing to the fact that paradise is heaven. So what's paradise like? It's perfect, painless. No more suffering, no more tears. Why? Because God is there like he was in the garden. Which leads to the second point of the the second word. You will be with me. You know, one of the most excruciating experiences that I can imagine is really to be left out, to be unwanted. I suspect that the thief on the cross knew this pain of rejection. He was called a criminal and a robber. So I don't think it's too far off to imagine him as a misfit, an outcast of society. A person unabandoned, unloved. A person whose life of crime reflects a loveless, unloved life. And no one would have anything to do with him, especially someone who knew no sin. 
Can you imagine his shock and reaction when Christ looks at him and says, you'll be with me? You and me? A, a ruler and a robber? A king and a con man? Me and you together? I'm sure Jesus received this reaction many times throughout his life. As he pardoned and gave grace and forgiveness to people like prostitutes, tax collectors, and lepers. I'm sure he received that action, that reaction of, you and me? You want to be with me forever? Yes, I do. See, God created humans not just to tend to gardens, but to enjoy fellowship with him. You get this from Genesis 3, when he says, The man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the Lord called to the man, Where are you? God created us to have fellowship with him. He wants to be with us. That's the whole plan. That's, that's the reason for the gospel. And the reconciliation of that is Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. So we can spend eternity with him. Me and you, Christ says. This is the hope we have. That's why William Garnell says, let your hope of heaven master your fear of death. Jesus loved that criminal on the cross just as he, he, loves, he loves you and wants to be with you as well. Thankfully, the criminal experienced love just before his death. But it wasn't until his final breath that he experienced that love, that acceptance. And that doesn't have to be that way for me and you. We don't have to wait till the end of our lives to do that. If you haven't already, you can turn to him now if you haven't done so and ask him to remember you, to walk with you, to be there wherever life takes you. And you'll experience that immediately. The third part of the word is today. Today you'll be with me in paradise. The question is, when a person dies, where does he go? And when does he get there? A lot of theologians like to debate this. There's a lot of thoughts on this. But it's helpful to remember that Jesus' concept of today is very different than ours. Peter wrote about the day of the Lord and tried to reassure Christians who were impatient to see Jesus come back. He said, but don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. In other words, time is a human construct, but eternity is a divine experience holding past, present, and future together. That's why D.L. Moody says we talk about heaven being so far away. It's within speaking distance to those who belong there. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. So the question is this morning, this afternoon, is are you prepared? Because we don't know when our last breath will be. So are you prepared? Notice something interesting, that the man on the cross, the criminal, really only asked Jesus to remember him. Remember him for good. Remember me, Jesus. Some distant promise. The man asked for a remote blessing in the future, but he receives a promise immediately. Christ does more than that. Not only will he be remembered, but he's going to be with Christ today in paradise. He gave him immeasurably more than he ever could ask. That's why Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we all ask or imagine according to his power that is work within us. What did he give him immeasurably more than he asked for? Grace. He gave the man grace. Undeserved grace. The first word of the cross teaches us some wonderful truths, doesn't it? First, it illustrates that the way to salvation is wonderfully simple. The devil has often blinded our eyes to the fact that becoming a Christian or coming to Christ is very difficult to do. But this clearly isn't so. 
The man was saved simply by asking the Lord to save him. In other words of his request, there's an implication that he felt and confessed his need of salvation. He believed the Lord could and would save him, and he committed himself to the Lord and trusted him to save him. That's the first thing. Salvation is wonderfully simple. Second, the word from the cross reminds us that the worst sinner can be saved. There's no doubt that this man was a criminal. He was on the cross being crucified. Even he recognized his own sin. But even the worst sinner can become saved. There's nothing that you can do or you have done that you can't be saved from. And that's what the devil wants us to think, that the guilt that you have in your life, there's no way to come to Christ. And we see this with this criminal. Don't think you're too bad to be saved. As the hymn writer puts it, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Finally, we learn from the personal encounter of the dying thief that with Jesus, salvation doesn't depend on religious ceremonies, good deeds, or a contribution from man. There was no time for this guy on the cross, this criminal, to produce a list to Christ and say, hey, here's all the things that I did right in my life. And we do that, don't we? We try to do good things. We, we go to church. We, we do our prayers. We tithe. We do things the Bible tells us. We try to live according to ceremonies and rituals. And this, this word shows us that it doesn't depend on ceremonies, good deeds, or any contributions from man. It's based on grace. And grace alone. So finally, hear these words from one author who writes... The thief asks for help. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The heavy head of Christ lifts and turns and the eyes of the two meet. When Jesus, what Jesus sees is a naked man. I don't mean in terms of clothes. I mean that he had no cover, no way to hide. Tell me, what has this thief done to warrant help? He has wasted his life. Who is he to beg for forgiveness? What, is, what does he have the right to pray this prayer? What right does he have? Do you really want to know? The same right you have to pray yours. You see, that's me and you on the cross, naked, desolate, hopeless, and estranged. That's us asking, in spite of what I've done, in spite of what you see, is there any way you can remember me when we all get home? We don't boast. We don't produce our list. Things we've done right. Any sacrifice appears silly when, when placed before Christ on the cross. It's more than we deserve, but we're desperate, so we plead. And so many others before us, the crippled at the pool, Mary at the wedding, Martha at the funeral, Nicodemus at night, Peter on the sea, Joseph at the stable, and every other human being who has ever dared to stand before the Son of God and admit his or her need. We, like the thief, have one more prayer. And we, like the thief, pray. And we, like the thief, hear the voice of grace. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. And we, like the thief, are unable to endure the pain of this life, knowing that he'll soon take us home. At this point now, we're going to come to the Lord in prayer. So whatever your custom is, whether sitting or kneeling, we're going to do that at this time. Dear Lord Jesus, we adore you. For the gift of glory won for us this day by your death upon the cross. We pray that as your cross is lifted up among us, all who see it might lay hold of you and with you. Know the secure and certain hope that heaven is their home. Amen.